welcome back to the Relational Grace Podcast, where we feature the teachings of Pastor Nick Harris, who taught us that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm Amy Moffat, Nick's daughter, and I hope you're enjoying the teachings of our Essentials of the Faith series. These teachings were the things Dad felt were absolutely necessary to understand about our faith. In this teaching, Dad will explain the meaning of reconciliation. In this episode, Pastor Harris explains the value of understanding the Greek language when reading the New Testament. Dad believed God chose to write the New Testament in this language because it is the most explicit language ever devised. It is very specific. To truly understand the meaning of reconciliation, you must understand the Greek word, which Dad will explain for us. Pastor will tell the Old Testament story of Hosea as an incredible example of reconciliation. The actions of Hosea purchasing Gomer just as she was is a beautiful picture of what God did for us. The act of reconciliation tears down the wall between God and man. All we have to do is surrender and enter into a relationship with our living God. So with that, I give you today's message titled, Reconciliation. You know, when I was a beginning student at the Graduate Seminary of Phillips University, We would be in class, especially in our biblical theology classes and in our our biblical exegesis classes, and and we would attempt to interpret some phrase in the New Testament. Now, in some instances, we would go around the room, and one by one, each of us would make a stab at interpreting the meaning of that text, but the professor would look at us, and then he would shoot everything down. I mean, it seemed like... And we'd just be left, we wouldn't understand what in the world was going on. And then the professor would smile and he'd say to us, you cannot explain it, boys, because you're trying to interpret it in English. You must go to the Greek. And then he would always say, remember, Greek words always mean more than English words. He said, if you're going to be a successful preacher and founder of the word, You must think in Greek. And you know, he was right. I knew this because I had taken biblical Greek myself, and I knew that the Greek language often has many words that describe just one word in English. And to understand a text, you must understand the the various nuances of a particular Greek word. Take, for example, our word love. Now, you all heard me preach on this a hundred times. You see... There are four Greek words to describe that one word, love, in English. There's the word agape, there's the word eros, there's the word phileo, and there's the word storge. Now, agape, very simply, is defined by Jesus himself as not necessarily even liking a person. Agape love is a willingness to lay down your life for another person. That's Agape love. Eros is our word erotic comes from it. It, It's it's sexual love. The word phileo means brotherly love. Our word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, comes from the word phileo. And storge just means a general liking of someone. Now, each of these words have a slight variation in their meaning. And that is why the Greek language is called the most explicit language ever devised. And I believe that is the reason that God chose Greek to be the language of the New Testament. It is so specific in its meaning. 
you can't make a mistake if you go to the Greek text. And this is true of the word love, but it's also true of another New Testament word that is equally important. And that is the word reconciliation. Now, there are three Greek words that express the idea of being reconciled to someone, of reconciliation. And like the word love, each Greek term possesses its own unique and specific variation of meaning. Now, the first of these is the Greek verb dialosomai. Dialosomai. This word means, now, now, you've got to listen very carefully to what I'm fixing to say. It means to bring two people, now that's important, to bring two people, both of whom were at odds with one another, into a relationship together. Now, what makes this word, this particular word unique from the other two words we're going to talk about relates to the fact that in this case, both of the parties are estranged. Both of the parties are angry with each other. Once again, it's not one person who is angry at another person. It is two people angry at one another. That is dialosomai. Now, one of the places in the New Testament where the word dialosomai is found is the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. Now, here, Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said by them of old, you shall not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother, alienated from his brother, without cause, shall be in danger of judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Racha, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has anything against you, Leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First, be diolosomide, reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. So in this case, there are two persons who have turned their back on each other. They are both angry. One hates the other. One, one despises that person. One can't stand the sight of that person even coming his direction, and the other is calling him names. I mean, this is, this is strife. Two, two people striving with one another. You see, Jesus is saying, those two persons need to be reconciled. They need to be brought into a relationship. This is the word dialosomai. And here's another thing about dialosomai. This word is never used in the New Testament. Not even once in reference to God. Now, why is this? You know why. It's because God is not angry. Ever since Jesus died on the cross, he no longer turns his back on anyone. You see, it is fallen human beings who turn our backs on God. It is not God turning his back on us. God loves us with an everlasting love. God is always ready to be reconciled. As we see in the picture, he's standing here with his hands out. He's, he's, he's looking across the barriers. He's saying, I want you to come here. Look at what I've done. He said, through my propitiation, through redemption, through substitutionary death, I have made a way for us to come together, for us to be reconciled. I'm not angry with you. Be reconciled to me. Now, the second word that's translated into English as reconciliation is the verb apokatalazo. 
Now, that's a great big old word, apokatalazo. Now, it's closely related to the main verb that we're going to be considering this morning. Apokatalazo means to completely change from being in a state of hatred and enmity to being in a condition of fellowship. But now, here's the key. When this word is used in the New Testament, it never refers to two parties. It means that only one party is at odds with the other person. One of the parties is not angry at all, is not at enmity. This person feels no animosity toward the other person. So apokatalazo means this. It means to restore that one alienated person to fellowship with the person with whom he or she is angry. That's apokatalazo. But now the word we'll spend our time considering today is the third and final word. This verb is katalasso, the same word without the prefix apo, apo. Now this word is used in several places in the New Testament, but especially in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21, which, beloved, is the key passage on reconciliation in the entire uh, New Testament. Now, every time this word is used, it is in the context of God and man. God is never angry, and God is never alienated from mankind. It is mankind alienated from, alienated from God, and mankind, or God, wanting to close the gap. So we should think of Kalazzo in the following way. Now, here's God over here. Here are human beings over here. The human being is at odds with God. The human being has turned his or her back on God. He or she is hostile toward God. And what I want you to see is this. God does not have to be reconciled to this person because God is not alienated. It is the human being that must be reconciled, right? In other words, the verb kalazo refers to only one person in a relationship being angry and feeling alienated. And that is the one who needs to be brought back. And that's an important distinction. That's the key. Just one person needs to be reconciled. Now, several examples of reconciliation can be found in the Bible. But there is one found in the Old Testament that really does it for me. It's one of the best that I know. Now, here's the story. And I must warn you, it's a very strange tale. It's so strange that it's going to trouble you. You'll probably go out and think about it all week long. And it should trouble you. It's very strange. One day, a prophet named Hosea was praying. He was in the Spirit. And God was moving on Hosea. Uh, that They were intimately tied together, Hosea and God. And as he prayed, God spoke to him. And he told the prophet that he wanted him to go out and marry a certain woman that God himself had picked out for him. Now, here's the strange part. The woman that God chose for the prophet was a prostitute. She was a woman of the night. She was disgraceful in that society. Her name was Gomer. So in obedience to his God, Hosea did exactly as he was told. 
He married this woman, this prostitute. And I can say this for the prophet. He refused to allow her past occupation to deter him, to bother him. He reached out. He took her. He brought her home. He wed her. He refused to allow what she had been before to taint the way he felt about her now. In fact, after they were wed, he treated this woman, Gomer, with absolute love and respect, as if this woman had been a virgin when they were married. And for a time, the marriage seemed to be working. This woman bore the prophet two fine sons. And that's another sermon that I'll have to preach you someday, is a sermon about the two sons. But as the months passed, Gomer began to grow restless. Hosea began to notice she wasn't the same as she would be, had been. The, the, the same relationship was not there anymore. She, she began to drift away from him, and one day she decided to return to her life as a prostitute. The prophet was heartbroken. He was shattered. He went to her. He said, Gomer, we got these two precious boys. For God's sake, don't do this. Come home and be a mother. Be, be a wife. But she wouldn't come back. She entered into this life of whoredom and continued to do it. And then finally one day, he saw her no more. She, she was no longer in the streets of the, of the town where they lived. He, he, he lost contact and... and then one month turned into two, and two into four, and four into a year, and one year into two years, and three years, and four years. Several years passed. And then one day, Hosea was praying, and God spoke to him again. And he spoke to him again about Gomer, about his wife. And he told Hosea, I want you to go out and I want you to find her and I want you to bring her back to your home. I'm afraid that Hosea was a much better man than me. I'm serious. I'm not so sure. I, I, you know, my first question would be, God, is this really you? I'm getting along fine without her. <laughs> As a matter of fact, believe me, I can't stand the stress, God. But God said, go find her. So the prophet, once again, in obedience to the divine command, began to search for his estranged wife. But all to no avail. He could not seem to find her anywhere. However, one faithful day... As Hosea was walking through the marketplace, he noticed that there was a slave auction taking place. Now, this was rather common in Israel in those days. As a matter of fact, in those days, probably half of the population were indentured in some means or another. And so as he was walking through the marketplace, he noticed this auction, and he stopped to observe. After several persons had been sold to various persons standing around, a woman was brought to the block. 
be so. The prophet looked. The woman was beaten, weathered, dirty, bruised, hair in mats. Probably teeth rotting. And he recognized this woman as his long-lost wife. He had to examine her closely, but sure enough, as he looked into her face, he saw it was Gomer. And it was an awful scene for the prophet to watch. He remembered that beautiful young thing that had borne, her, borne him children. And here she was, almost destroyed by her life. There she stood on the slave block, stripped naked. This was the way all female slaves were sold in those days. This was a shameful thing for a person to be seen in public naked. But women sold into slavery were stripped. So what does Hosea do? Here's this ugly, tarnished, unvirtuous, horrid example of a person who's run off and left her children in his care all of these years. What do you do? Hosea is the one who's been wronged. But let me tell you about the man of God. Because he is a man of God, he wasn't about to allow his wife to be sold to another bidder. So even though the prophet had very few resources, even though he was impoverished, he began to bid on his wife and he continued to raise his bid until he purchased her for 15 pieces of silver. Must have been a fortune. Must have been a fortune to this man. And when she was surrendered to him, Hosea took off his own robe and wrapped it around her covering her nakedness. And he brought her back to his home. Never once did the prophet attempt to exact retribution from this poor woman. Not even once. Never once did he throw it in her face. Never once did he tell her what she was in continual, in continual reminders of, of the life she had lived and how she had wronged him. I know people who just can't get over some wrong that's been done. Just continue to bring it up and bring it up. And you know what? You bring it up enough and it's going to eat you alive. It'll strip everything good from you. This man of God says, no, I'm not going there. Never once did he attempt to exact retribution. And what a great picture this paints. The concept Divine reconciliation. The principle of kataloso. Now I can tell you that from this experience, Hosea learned several things. Not the least of which was this. He learned how God felt about one thing in particular. He learned from this how God felt about his wife. 
Oh, beloved, if we had stopped for a moment before we come too critical of people and we would begin to look at that person through the eyes of God, we might see some things differently. Hello? You see, he learned how God felt about his wife, Hosea's wife, Gomer. But he also learned how God feels about his wife. I'm talking about the wife of God. Did you know that God has a wife? Now, we know that we're the bride of Christ, the church. But we're not the bride of God. God has a wife. And do you know who the wife of God is? Beloved, the wife of God is the people of Israel. And in the Old Testament era, God's wife, Israel, was very much like Gomer. This prophet had experienced some of the pain that God felt. What he experienced with Gomer was how God experienced the pain of Israel's constant flirtation with the gods. God felt like Hosea when he was forced to watch Israel's continual love affairs with the world. And like Hosea, God was ready to be reconciled to his bride if she would only turn to him. No matter what she had done, he was willing to take her back. Once again, God had never turned his back on Israel. He never had to be reconciled to her. It was she that needed to be reconciled to him. Like Hosea, God never became angry with his beloved. Yes, beloved, God is very much like Hosea. And we're very much like Gomer. We fallen human beings are the ones who have to be brought back to God. It is we who have to be reconciled. And that is what the word katalasso means. You see, God has always known that we would never be brought back to him unless he himself did something. You see, we imagine it's us who's supposed to do something, but not in the eyes of God. God understood there was something he had to do. So you know what God did? He took the initiative. He came into the slave market of this world. He saw us there naked, beaten down, broken. And he bid on us. Only he didn't purchase us for 15 pieces of silver. He purchased us for 30 pieces of silver. <laughs> But here's the thing. When he's hanging there on that cross and he is breathing his last, he is bidding for us, not as we ought to be, but as we are. Understand this. God accepts you as you are. God is so much like Hosea. Look at what Hosea did. The prophet began to bid on his fallen wife. And I must tell you again, this would be hard for me to do. If I'm down there, I would look at her and say, listen, old girl, 
You had it coming. I don't think I'm alone. You see, if it had been me in the marketplace, and I looked up at this immoral woman I'd married as she stood on the slave block, I would have shouted up to her and said something like this. Calmer, if you'll just clean yourself up, if you'll just take a bath and comb your hair and put on a clean robe, and swear you'll never be unfaithful to me again, I will bid on you. Hmm? Am I all alone in this place? No, this is not what he did. He did not try to get her to clean herself up before he brought her home. Listen, I was raised in a church where I was told almost every Sunday that if you smoke cigarettes, you're going straight to hell. If you danced, you were going straight to hell. If you drank, you're going straight to hell. And if you looked at a woman to lust after, you were going straight to hell. Try to tell that to a 16-year-old kid with raging hormones. I never felt good enough because the church was telling me I had to get clean enough for God. One day I found out that God loves me as I am for how I am. And when I'm in love with Him, all of a sudden other things begin to take care of themselves. My desires change. Phil, when you first got saved, you had as many bad habits as anybody as I've ever seen. But you know what? You can say this about Pastor, never once did I ever condemn you. And you know what? As I watch that relationship grow, I watch one by one so those things begin to fall away. Not out of guilt, out of relationship. See, relationship, do you understand that relationship takes care of all of this stuff? See, this woman right here, I want you to know right now, I don't deserve her. Anybody that looks at her can see that the likes of me should not be married to the likes of her. I'm so grateful that she loves me. And let me tell you this right now. I have never, ever, not once, been unfaithful to her. Why? Because I can't be? No. <laughs> I've had all kinds of opportunities to be unfaithful. I'm not. And there's only one reason for it. It's not because I signed a document that said I'll be faithful. That has nothing to do with it. I could sign a thousand documents and still be unfaithful. I'm faithful because I'm in relationship with her and I love her with all my heart. And there's no way in God's green earth that I want to disappoint her. And that's how I began to feel about God after a while. As I began to understand the relationship that God loved me as I was and took me as I am. And as I got closer to Him, I wanted to please Him more and more in my life. God didn't force me to give up anything out of a relationship of love. I left a lot of things in my past. Does that make sense to you? This is reconciliation. You see, Hosea didn't try to get her to clean up before he brought her home. The prophet bid on her, just like she was. 
He purchased her just as she was. He took her home just as she was. She got cleaned up later. And that's God's way too. You have to be good enough. You don't have to be good enough or clean enough for Him. You know, when I think about it, I'm pretty sure that Gomer was filled with guilt and shame when she looked down from that slave block, when she suddenly realized who it was that was bidding on her. I don't know what's more painful, being a slave or looking down and seeing the person that you've wronged for so long bidding on you, making no demands. Don't you think she remembered all the cruel things she'd done to him? So as she looked into his face, she probably wished he would just go away. But he wouldn't go away. He was there to stay. She was his bride. And by all things holy, he was going to redeem her. And he did. Now this activity was what the Apostle Paul was referring to when he wrote these words in Colossians 1, 21 and 22. He says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, like Gomer, and engaged in evil deeds, like Gomer, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Do you hear what it said? He has reconciled you. He's the one who wasn't angry. But he reconciled you. He came to you. And remember what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.19. And God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Oh, I love this. Not counting their trespasses, their sins against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. You get the message? God's not holding our sins against us anymore. How long has this been the case? For 2,000 years. Because your sins, past, present, and future, are nailed to the cross. The reconciliation he made available to us on the cross has neutralized his anger at our sins. And that's why the cross will always be the central message of the gospel. In fact, it is what Christ did on the cross that makes reconciliation with God a possibility. You see, I've got a new toy. Let's see. Can you see that? Isn't that cool? You see, through his propitiation, through his redemption, through his substitutionary death, we have been reconciled. We have been reconciled. Now look, what this means is because of the cross, this guy now stands here. The wall is no more. The wall is no more. Can you see? It's been removed. That's reconciliation. And without reconciliation, there's no way to remove the alienation and hostility that we fallen human beings have toward God. But with reconciliation, then we have this truth. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting the truth. Pastor, you don't know how bad I've been. doesn't matter. God doesn't care. He doesn't even remember it. 
I'm going to close with this example. I've used it before, and some of you have heard it. But when I was four years old, my father was a traveling evangelist, and he traveled everywhere by train. He'd send his tent by truck, and we would travel by train. We were in the Tulsa airport. It was at the end of World War II. It was in 1945. And I remember as if it happened just yesterday. There was a porter, and he had a huge steamer trunk on his back. And he was almost bent over double with this steamer trunk. He had a bag under his arm and a bag in his hand. And he was just creeping across the platform. I looked at him, and that indelibly made an impression on me. I turned around to my daddy and said, Daddy, help that man. And daddy looked at me and said, That's his job. He knows how to handle that trunk better than I would. And so, I just thought about that for a long time. Every once in a while, I'll be thinking about my own failures. I dwell on my failures more than I'd like for you to know. And there's one in particular that bothers me greatly. Because it's a grievous sin. And that is the fact that I am divorced. I'm not proud of that fact. I'm very ashamed of that fact. And I remember at one point in my life, I was ready to leave the ministry because I didn't feel like a minister of the gospel ought to be divorced. I thought it was that was not something that a minister should ever have in his past. And I was ready to quit and give up. I was praying about it one day, and I had already written a letter to the Pastor Parish Relations Committee of the church to tell them that I would no longer be their pastor. And I'd written a letter to the bishop of the Methodist church telling him that I would be seeking another means of employment because pastors should not be divorced. And all of a sudden, God said, in the spirit, God spoke to me and said, why are you doing this? What, what, what? Why are you writing this letter? And I said, well, God, you know, it's that, it's that sin in my, my past. And God said, well, what sin is that? And I said, well, you know. And God said, no, I don't know. What, what, what sin are you talking about? And I said, well, God, I, you, you know, I failed. And God said, you did? Well, what, what happened? And I said, well, God, I'm, you know, I got a D-I-V-O-R-C-E. And God said, I didn't know that. He said, now what did you say you had? I said, you know, a D-I-D-O-R-C-E. He said, I didn't know you had that. Now, what did you say you had? See, you understand that when, when God and we come together, he forgets our past. Are you with me? He casts it into the sea of forgetfulness. Now don't go back and do what I do in that fish, in that sea. 
I'm always out there. And every once in a while I catch that trunk again and I pull it out and put it up on my back. And God says, hey, what's that you're carrying? I said, oh, God, you know, this is my past. He said, you're not going back there, are you? Because I don't know what that is. When we're reconciled, the past is forgotten. There's only one thing, and that's the relationship. That's what Christianity is. It's not a religion. It's a relationship with a living God. If you don't know about this relationship, I'm telling you now, you're missing something. Bill didn't know what he was missing until he surrendered to it. Pam didn't know what she was missing until she surrendered to it. John didn't know what he was missing until he surrendered to it. Doc, even you, as good as you were. I sat at your kitchen table one day and we talked about a relationship with the living Christ and you said, I want that. Simple as that. God finding people in the strangest places and reconciling. Now that's my son. That's our teaching for today. God bless you all. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to connect with Ariel Ministries on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our email list at arielministries.com. That's Ariel spelled A-R-I-E-L. We look forward to keeping you updated on upcoming episodes and projects. We would love to hear from you. Maybe you knew Pastor Harris and would like to share a story or a photo, or maybe this podcast touched your life in a special way. We would love to hear more. Send us a note via our Contact Us page at arielministries.com.